Come on in and sit down. We'll get ready for class. Come on in. Come on in, come forward too, come in close. Come in and be family. Come on in close and be family. I'm going to go ahead and start here. Um, last week, I just started a series upstairs called Walking with the Rabbi, Seeing Through a Different Lens. And so today, I've invited, for two weeks in a row, we get this pleasure, Pastor Don Finto to come and be with us. And yes, please, please. I know, this is such an honor. And he has brought his um, guest, Nika Stevens, who is also so worthy of honor. I've lost where she is. Um, so we're going to be blessed to talk about Romans 11 today. So some handouts are coming out, so make sure you get a handout so you can kind of follow along. But I'm going to call Don to the um, podium here. Let me pray over him. And I'm so, so thankful that you get to be here and witness this today. So come on up. Father God, thank you for the redemptive work that you just continually do in us. And Father, thank you for Brother Fento coming and, and just speaking a word into us as we continue to just receive this good work that you're doing within us. Pour your spirit out and pour your, your precious peace over him today as he speaks into us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Don. Amen. Amen. Well, yes, Lord, we're grateful to be here and grateful all of you to be here. And may the Lord just stir me on whatever I'm supposed to be saying here. Uh, you've got those sheets up there and, and, and just hold on to them because uh, let, me just, let me just talk with you for a minute about, uh, well, first of all, how I got into this whole thing. I, I really believe that it's important for the whole church to understand God's covenant with Israel. And uh, I mean, there are passages, I'm not sure that I have on this handout, but on, on one of the handouts uh, that you'll get next week, I have it in there that uh, in Jeremiah, for example, God says that the covenant with Israel is eternal. And even the land covenant is eternal. And the, and the land covenant was a was a one-way covenant. I mean, if you, we can see that maybe next week, but when uh, God put Abraham to sleep so that he didn't have any part in this, it was a one-way covenant. God committed to Abraham that the land of Israel belonged to his, his descendants in perpetuity. If they did not keep obeying him, they'd be put out of the land, but the land still belonged to them. And in Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, verses 5 and 6, and there's one of the places where he says, I'm bringing you back from the north, south, east, and west. And this is the first time in history that the, that the Jewish people have ever gone back to Israel from all four directions. They came back from Egypt, that's the south. They came back from Babylon, that's the east. But he says he's coming to the west and to the north. 
In fact, in that passage, he says, I'm going to say to the north, give them up. So there were some of my friends that I met that in the, late, in the 80s went to Moscow and circled Red Square over and over again saying, give the Jews up, you vile, uh, you vile enemy of Israel in Moscow, because they saw on reading scriptures that the Jewish people from the north were going to return to Israel. And now, today, about a million Jewish people are Russian Jews because they've returned. So anyway, there's just, and then I personally believe that if we don't get this heart for Israel, that's why I'm, I'm passionate to see the whole church understanding this because I believe if we don't get this heart for Israel, we're going to be on the wrong side of things when Jesus comes back. Because in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, Jesus is coming back. You remember when he said in Acts 1 that those, those angels said to the apostles that were standing looking in the sky, he's coming back the same way you saw him go. So I actually... I actually suspect there are two footprints on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus knows exactly where they are. And I suspect he's going to hit those two footprints when he's met. In my childhood, I was told over and over again that there's not any evidence scripturally that Jesus will ever put foot on the earth again. You know what? That's a lie. I mean, he said he's coming back the same way he saw him go. He's coming back to earth. And then he'll form a new earth. But he also... Zechariah says that his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two and that eastern gate is going to be opened and he's going to come back. And so anyway, but uh, so if we are not, if, if we do not understand God's heart for Israel and so much of the church does not, then I believe when he comes back, we're going to, the, the church is going to be swayed by the Palestinian and the enemies of Israel and they're going to be in, they're going to be, be believe all these lies that are being spread about Israel from the news media because the news media acts like Israel is the aggressor. Israel has never been the aggressor in a single war. In fact, I was so deeply grieved the other day because I heard of a group of people that had just come back from Israel. We were with, with a group the other night and this man said that they had a guide. They, they stayed in Jericho and Bethlehem rather than in, in Palestinian territories, and their guide told them that in the Six-Day War of 1967, that it just gave the Jewish people a reason, an excuse for gobbling up more Palestinian land. That's a total lie. Jew, the Jews weren't the aggressors in that war. They were surrounded by Arabs. Yes, they took more territory, but they're gonna take more territory because that's what God says. And so we're going to be, and then this, this guide told them also, listen to this, that the, that the apostles were all Pharisees. That's a total lie. There are lies being spread on our university campuses and all over. So anyway, now, so I mean, so I'm, 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 I want you to be passionate about this and, and learn enough about it that you know how to, how to talk to people because... We can't argue them into it, but we just have to pray them into it. Okay. The other thing that I want to tell you, I want to talk to you about it just a minute before we get going on Romans 11, is tonight begins the Feast of Tabernacles. So how can I stand up here and start talking to you about Romans 11 or anything else without referring to that just a little bit? Okay. First thing you need to know is 
the feasts. Passover, Pentecost, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. They are never, ever biblically called Jewish feasts. They're not ever called biblical feasts. They are called feasts of the Lord. And here's the thing that we all need to know. Jesus hit all of the early feasts when he was here, but he has not yet hit the fall feasts. Let me give you, I mean, we know Jesus was not, listen, I mean, this, I don't think it'll be a shock to all of you. Jesus did not rise from the dead on Easter morning. It's okay. He's still, he's glad for us to celebrate his resurrection at any time. He rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits, which was on the day after the Sabbath following Passover. You get that? Jesus, here's another way of saying it. God has a calendar and we have a calendar. He's never going to get on our calendar. We better get on his. You may not have thought about this or even read about this recently, but our, our calendar is called the, the Gregorian calendar. You know when it started? 1582 with Pope Gregory. And Pope Gregory was, was correcting the Julian calendar that started back in the time of Julius. And our calendar still celebrates two Caesars, as you know, Julius and Augustus. But since Pope Gregory was Catholic, the, the pri the, most of the world, except the Catholic world, didn't accept his calendar. And Great Britain and her, and her colonies didn't accept the Gregorian calendar until the year 1732. So our calendar that we're on is only, only dates from 1732. That's what, a little over 200 years. But God has a calendar. All right. So Jesus was crucified. Let me just, let me just, let me give you a little bit just to whet your appetite. In Exodus 12, God says that his calendar starts in Exodus 12, 1 and 2. God says, this is the beginning of the year for you. God's calendar starts 14 days before Passover. That's the first month. And he said in Exodus 12, that on the 10th day of Nisan, you're to select the lamb that's to be slain. And then for four days, they were to examine that lamb to see if there were any flaws in it so that it could be offered to God as a flawless lamb. On the eve of the 14th of Nisan, he would be slaughtered so that they would have the lamb for the Passover on, the eve, on that evening, which begins the 14th of Nisan. In John, the 12th chapter, verse 1, John says six days before Passover. Now, if you, if you count Passover as one of those days, that would be the 9th of Nisan. John 12, 12 says the next day, and the next day was the triumphal entry. And the next day would have been the 10th of Nisan. And what was supposed to happen on the 10th of Nisan? They were supposed to select the lamb for the slaughter. 
And it's, I believe that the triumphal entry is the, is the thing that, where the Jewish people said, oh, he's got to go. He absolutely has to go. This, and so they're, they're determined now to kill him. So what happens over the next four days? He's examined. Rabbi, you're so smart. Are we supposed to give tithes to Caesar? Well, show me a coin. Whose image is that? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Rabbi, there was, a, there, there was one man who was married and to, a, to a wife, and, and he died, and his brother married the wife, and that happened seven times. And so she had seven different husbands, and so whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? Well, you err, because you don't even know the scripture or the power of the scripture. We don't marry or give them in marriage. Oh, Rabbi, what's the, you see what I'm saying? He's questioned, he's scrutinized. And what was the last word that Pilate said? I find no fault in him. In other words, he's a flawless lamb, so go ahead and kill him. So they put him on the cross. During the day of the 13th of Nisan, at 9 o'clock in the morning, blood flowed from his side at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the time when lambs were being slain all over Jerusalem for the Passover that night. You see what I'm saying? And then he's crucified and raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And then Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law on Sinai, and it's now the new life, the new anniversary of the new law of the Spirit of Life. So see what I'm saying? We miss so much if we don't grab hold of God's calendar. Now, between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, there's a long interval, and we just passed the Feast of Trumpets. And you know what? And I can't prove this, and I know we're not supposed to know the day or the hour, but you know what? I just suspect that he's going to come in the fall because he hadn't hit those feasts yet. We don't know the day of the hour. Don't get me wrong. Could I be wrong? Of course I could be wrong. But hello, at the last trumpet, trumpets are sound. And the first feast is the Feast of Trumpets, which either he's going to come in or, it's, or there's going to be some announcement of his coming. And 10 days later, the Day of Judgment is, is the Day of Atonement, which is judgment. And then, five days after that, begins the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, all right. That... Okay, let me, give you, let me give you one. Let me, just, let me just stretch your mind as much as I dare about some of these things. I personally believe, and let me, uh, I may have to. I've got another handout here that I may give to you, give to Nancy to give you next week. It's called, it's on the feast of the Lord. But let me just tell you this. I personally believe that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles. And let me, let me give you the biblical reasons why I believe this. Zechariah was in the temple doing his annual service, right? When the angel Gabriel came to him and told him that Elizabeth was going to have a child. Got it? Well, Zechariah was in the division of Abijah. If you happen to me, I think that's Luke 1, 5, I think. But if you go back to 1 Chronicles 24, 
you will find that the division of Abijah went into the temple to serve during the latter part, during the eighth rotation out of 24 rotations for the year. Are you with me? So therefore, Zechariah was in the temple at the latter part of the fourth biblical month. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you tracking with me? Nod your head or something to pay for tracking with me. So Zechariah was in the temple to offer at the latter part of the fourth month. When so if, And then, where does, Abraham, does Gabriel go six months later? Gabriel goes to Mary six months later, which would be the latter part of the tenth month. You still follow me? If Jesus was born nine months later, it would be the latter part of the 19th month. Okay? You doing your math? But there are only 12 months in the year. So subtract 12 from 19 and you get how many? Come on, speak up. It's okay. Seven. So it would mean that Jesus was born the latter part of the seventh month. Well, biblically, what's happening the latter part of the seventh month? The Feast of Tabernacles starts on the 15th day of the seventh month. Well, why? And so that's what the Tree of Life Bible translates John 1.14 is. And, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But the Word tabernacled among us. But then the Feast of... So anyway, we fast forward in the Feast of Tabernacles. And the reason why the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem started these annual Feasts of Tabernacle in Jerusalem is because they had read Zechariah that during probably the millennium or at least sometime in the future that, that all the nations are going to go up to worship the king during the Feast of Tabernacles and if they don't go up and worship him during the Feast of Tabernacles they're not going to get any rain. So anyway, just, alright. Enough said. Okay, that's let's see if we can get into, into the Romans 11 now. I'm not going to try to just read through this one, but, but okay, let me, let me just start like this. Let me, let me give you a, well, I, I have this here in, at the beginning, that the Roman believing community was no doubt established by the people that were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.10, but the Jewish people, under, they, so they went back and they brought Gentiles and Jews together, but then... In the year probably 49 AD, the Jewish people were exiled from Rome. They were, they were run out of Rome. So what's going to happen? If they're run out, who's left, who are the believers that are left in Rome? The Gentiles, because the Jews are not there. So what happens to the leadership? The leadership of the community of believers now goes to who? Not to the Jews now, to the Gentiles. But now... When Paul is writing this letter, the Jewish people have been, have been able to come back into Rome. So he's talking to, to Jews and Gentiles. And part of the whole background of, of Romans is there's still a place for Jewish leadership. And you Gentiles don't just push them to, totally out. And so from beginning to end in the Roman letter... He's talking about, is there any advantage to being a Jew? Yes, of course there are, because they're the ones who had the promises and so forth. And, and by the way, Romans 1, 6, 8, it was first to the Jew, but also judgment's going to turn first to the Jew. That's in Romans 2. And then, but, but anyway, and then Romans 9, 10, and 11, I, okay, I'll, 
my alma mater is Evelyn Christian and uh, Aberdeen Christian University and uh, they had a they had a, one of their lectureships about several years ago now was was the book of Romans and so I went and I looked at all the major lectures and I thought what are they going to do with 9 10 and 11 and you know what they skipped them they went from Romans 8 to Romans 12. Why? They didn't know what to do with Romans 9, 10, 11. Let me tell you something else. While I was still pastor at Belmont, there was a Sunday that Barry, Linda, you may remember, Lanny, you and Hester, you and Kathy may remember. I don't know, at, we were at the junior high and there was one Sunday, I was, I was, I preached four sermons on Romans and they at four different times. My first sermon was Romans one through four, and I just, I quoted it. The next one was Romans five through eight, and the next one was Romans nine through 11. All I did was get up and barely introduce it, and just spoke Romans nine through 11. And Joe Rogers, who was the ambassador to France under Reagan, was there, he was a part of our congregation then, and he came up to me when I finished and he said, for the first time in my life, I understand why Israel is so important. I hadn't spoken my own words. I had only spoken Romans 9 through 11. So no, Romans 9, 1 says, well, okay, I could wish myself accursed for the sake of my own people. Romans 10 says, oh, my heart's desire and prayer for God is for Israel that they would be saved because... I bear the record that they, are, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, they're trying to be righteous in their own act instead of accepting the righteousness that comes through, you, through Jesus. And then at the end of Romans 10, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to this obstinate and disobedient people. But then he goes into Romans 11, and let me just, I mean, let, let, before I start anything, let me, just, let me just pretend I'm the Apostle Paul, and you just, and you just listen to me. Don't, don't open your Bible. Don't look at your Bible. Let me just talk to you. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? There is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's grace, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. But what then? What Israel so earnestly sought, it not, did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, and he's quoting Isaiah here, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes so that they could not see. And ears so that they could not hear to this present day. And David says, may their table be a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution to them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? 
not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. And as much as I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough that's offered is first fruits is holy, the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, the wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, don't boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you don't support the root. The root supports you. Well, you'll say, well, some of the branches were broken off so that I'd be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off for unbelief. And you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant. But be afraid. If God did not spire the natural branches, he'll not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And I want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he'll turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with you when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy upon them all. Ah, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths are past tracing out. Who's known the mind of God? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and to him and through him him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, just, you see the power of that? 
I mean, the reason why I, I'm, I'm, I'm so great, we have all of our students memorize Romans 11. We have 14 students that are about to go to Israel, and then some of them will go to Egypt and some to northern Iraq, and they'll, they'll quote Romans 11 to us before we leave. And I'm glad I've still got it inside of me, and I want to keep it inside of me the rest of it. But you see the power of it? How much more powerful it is for me to speak it to you than it is to read it? Or how much more for, to, for you to read it? That's why I wanted you to close your Bibles. I just wanted you to hear what Paul is saying. Now, I wish, I wish we were in a setting where you could just tell me what are the things, I mean, that, that bounced out to you. But there's so much in there. Okay, the first thing is, and I'm, I've just got some of these things highlighted in the handout that you've got. But the first thing is, listen to me. Oh, listen to me. May the church get this. God has not rejected the Jewish people. They have not stumbled so as to fall beyond recovery. Okay. Pause. One of the passages that I'm living in right now is Hosea 3, 4, and 5, which says, the Israelites will not have a king for many years. They have not had one since 586 B.C. when Zedekiah was taken to Babylon and his eyes were put out. They will not have a sacrifice for many years. They have not had a sacrifice since 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. Listen to this. Afterward, they will return trembling to the Lord and his blessings in the last days. That's Hosea. Now, the one that's in here we'll get to in just a minute, but let me just pause. They, these are the last days. There are, I mean, almost no Jewish people came to faith for 18 centuries because the church was the worst persecutor of the Jews. We killed them. Holocaust chambers had die in the name of Christ on it. Ferdinand and Isabel in Spain exiled the Jews, confiscated their wealth. Jew, I mean, the church was its worst persecutors. Very, very few Jewish people came to faith for 18 centuries. You had somebody like Edersheimer, the, fam the famous theologian. You had Bisrael, Benjamin Disraeli, who was a prime minister in Israel. There were a few. Mendelssohn's were, believer, were Jewish believers, the composers, the musicians. But almost none for 18 centuries. But in 1967, there was a switch that flipped in heaven when Israel took Jerusalem and the Jesus movement started and tens, even yes, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people have come to faith in the last 50 years. In America and in Israel, some believe, some believe there are as many as a million. But this passage in Hosea doesn't say a few hundred thousand. It says they, Israel. I believe the time is coming when every major synagogue in the entire world are going to be filled with believers in Jesus. That's what that scripture says to me. And so, amen. So, and, so anyway, so I start dreaming. And as I, well, okay, first of all, I, I connect this with Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 20, where God, where Paul says, to him who's able to do far more than we can ask, think, or imagine. And so by his saying that, I think we're supposed to imagine. So I start imagining what it might look like for Jewish people, all of them, to come to faith. And this is what I saw. I just, 
I, I didn't try to make this happen. I just, this is what I saw in my imagination. I saw a 16-year-old Jewish kid talking to his mother and dad at the breakfast table. And he said, Mom, Dad, I had a really strange dream last night. And uh, Jesus was in it. And uh, he said he was the Messiah. And his mom puts her hand over in his arm and says, Son, I had the same dream. And the dad says, Well, maybe I guess you all can believe this now. But this morning at 2 o'clock, my room was filled with light. I mean, we're talking sunlight. And I guess you can believe this now. There was an angel in it. And he said, you've been wrong. He is the Messiah. He didn't even tell me who he was talking about, but I knew. we got to go to the rabbi. So they go to the rabbi and sit down, and they sit down, and the rabbi says, you don't have to tell me why you've come. We've been wrong. And this first thing, it starts spreading all over the world. All over the world. And then I fast forward, and I'm, I'm in this big gathering, and over here, there, and I'm in a field, and over here on this side, there are hundreds of Jews and Gentiles dancing the horror together, rejoicing in Yeshua that we now are one people. And over here on this side, there are people just on their faces before the Lord in repentance because we didn't see this and help usher it in by prayer. And, and then I see this Zechariah 8.23 being fulfilled that 10 people grabbed hold of a Jew and say, tell us about him. We heard God's with you. And, and we become this one new man, Jew and Gentile together. And I think if, if when that happens, I'm going to be a Simeon. I'm going to say, okay, Lord, you can take me now. I'm ready. I'm, I, I've seen it now. I knew it was coming. And so take me. So anyway, but while I'm, while I'm imagining all this, I get this, there's a, there's a guy in Washington, D.C. that I got acquainted with. His name is John Desser. And Senator, uh, Ambassador Brownback told him to call me because he's Jewish and, and Sam Brownback knew I would be interested in what he had to say. Uh, he thought Christians just hadn't done their homework or they wouldn't really be believers and believe all those fables. But then he was at a presidential prayer breakfast and two of the people he most admired in the entire world gave their testimony and he had to rethink what... And, and so, so he thought, well, I'm going to read that book. And so he gets the Bible and starts reading in Genesis one chapter a day. That's what he said. It must have taken him three years. And, but, but by the time he got to the Sermon on the Mount, he was a believer. And, and I have no idea. Oh, all of his relatives, and all of his relatives, his father, all of in Israel, he's got dual citizenship. He's, he's an Israeli citizen and an American citizen. He works in Washington, D.C. We visited with him the other night. And... and all his relatives in Israel are Hasidic, which means the black hat, the, you know, the long curls down the side, all this kind of thing. And he's got a man, I'm going to Israel, I'm leaving on the 4th of November. I don't know whether I'm going to do this or not, but he wants to introduce me to a man in any way. I can show you his picture here. You can look him up the internet. His name is Ariel Cohen Aloro. And there's a thing on the internet, and listen, this is, and this guy, this guy is, a, is an attorney He's not a rabbi, he's an attorney, but his rabbi is a rabbi of rabbis and believes that Jesus' trial was illegal. There are a group of rabbis in Israel that believe that Jesus' trial was illegal. It was held sort of in some of it clandestinely at night 
and some of it was, uh, and, and on the eve of the feast day, and that he needs to be retried, and this guy wants to be his defense attorney, and, 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 and I'm supposed to get introduced to him when I go to Israel in November, and, and in, on his website, this is the first paragraph that describes him. Ariel Cohen Aloro is a Jewish Hasidic Orthodox from Jerusalem, Israel, and one of the bi top Bible codes experts today. He recently undertook the crucial prophetic task to unveil Jesus, Yeshua, as the Jewish Messiah and to explain the concepts of Christianity from a genuine 100% Jewish Orthodox perspective as a natural way to return him in kosher garments back to the Jewish establishment. Now, will it, is this, I mean, the reason I, I, want you to, I want to say that to you is because I just want you to know there's all sorts of really wonderful, strange things happening that are bringing these people back. Let me, let me just give you one example of a man that I know. Now, by the way, this, his testimony might be in this book, Your People Should Be My People. But, but anyway, his name is Guy Cohen. He's in Akko. His granddad was a Jewish, was an Orthodox rabbi, and he wanted Guy to become an Orthodox rabbi. And so Guy's going to the synagogue all the time, but as a young man, he starts asking questions of the rabbi, and one time he asked the rabbi about the king coming in on a donkey that's in Zechariah. And the rabbi says, oh, no, not really. It doesn't mean donkey, really. It's, it's that. And he mixed up two Hebrew words, and he says, it may be a helicopter, maybe a limousine, we don't know. And he, he walked off, and he, but he went back to the Torah, and he read it again, and he said, but it says donkey. <laughs> and, and so he, anyway, he got so disgusted that he took off his kippah and, become, and became secular. And one day, but I'll, I'll fast forward the thing, but anyway, he, but he's a seeker. And one day he was walking down to Akko, around the streets of Akko. He showed me exactly where this happened. Somebody walked up and gave him a little booklet. And he looked at it and it said, it was Hebrew, and it says, living, living water. And he said, no, thank you. And he turned around and there was absolutely nobody in sight. Nobody in sight. He started frustrated, just running one way and another, but there was nobody around. But he had a booklet. He thought, now this is weird. And so he starts opening it, and he realizes it's, and it, and it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of, it's the book of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. He thought, oh my God, I, I'd be put out of the synagogue even for reading this, but I'm already out of the synagogue. And so he keeps on reading it, and he comes over to the place where Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Better to go to life with one eye than to hell with two. If your hands offend you, Cut it off. Better to go to life with one hand than with two, go to hell with two. And he say, and, and, and guy says, oh, this is my kind of rabbi. He's radical. And so he keeps on going and gets to Matthew 21, and there comes the king on the donkey. He says, that's the man I've been looking for. And now he leads a messianic congregation in Akko. So I'm just telling you, there's, this, there's some good stuff going on. Do you, okay, where are we? And hey, we actually are out of time, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Pardon? About five. Well, let me, just, let me just run through and see if I... Okay, let me, just, let me just highlight some things here. Okay, when Jewish people come to faith, 
it will be greater riches revival for the whole world. Did you get that? If their transgression means riches for the world. And one, one of the things I like about this new version of the Your People is that it, it has testimonies at the back. And in the, on the Greater Riches Revival chapter, David McQueen, who is pastor of Belly Park Church in Abilene, Texas, gives the, rebu- I mean, gives the thing. And what he says is that for his whole Christian life, he says, I was a functional replacement theologian. I believe the church had utterly replaced Israel and all the promises of God belonged now to the Jewish people had spread only to the church. In essence, God was finished for the Jewish people except for a few who had become Christians. But interestingly, he said, I had never heard anyone teach this explicitly. It was believed so deeply that no one needed to teach it. But then he says, when he, and he tells, when he became a pastor in Abilene, he called me to travel with me because he wanted to, because of, I was a pastor. And so I said, okay, come go to the Jewish Alliance with me. He said, okay. He said, I'll tolerate Don's thing about Israel in order to travel with him. And so I, when, he says, when I arrived at Don's home, he gave me the manuscript copy of Your People Should Be My People. The book was, and so he says, he suggested that I read some of it to know what we were getting into. I was young and brash enough, which sounds kinder than arrogant, to believe that Dr. Finto wanted my critique and input on his book. So on the flight to Pennsylvania, I began reading, making editorial marks in the margin, even though I myself had never written anything. And when Don quoted Romans 11:12, 12, I was stunned and perplexed. How could this man have so utterly misquoted scripture? I'd read Romans dozens of times, or even in the original Greek, and I knew, I thought I knew, that that was not in there. So I stood up to get my Bible, and Don said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I said, well, I, th- I think you've misquoted scripture. And he smiled knowingly. I opened my Bible to Romans 11 and began to read anyway. He reads it. He's so turned. He says he turned to Ashton. He goes back, tells his church, and they have become one of the major contributors up to Jewish ministry in the whole world. So anyway, there's just, hey, hold on to that one, and we'll get the next one on. I'll be back next week. Lord, oh, God, just open our eyes to what you're doing. Just thank you, Lord. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.